Hello, hello, hello. Today on For the Love of Sports, my guest is Mark Simon, research senior research analyst at Sports Info Solutions. And he, you may have known, was at ESPN for about 16 years as a writer and a researcher. I remember seeing Mark on TV. I'm a huge Baseball Tonight fan, huge Sunday Night Baseball fan, everything that he's done. And it just turns out we actually live super close, which is kind of funny. But Mark it was such a fun interview, such a cool guy. Also, he uh, used to be a huge Mets fan. Um, we talk about that a little bit, but he was so much fun, and I sincerely appreciate him giving me some of his time and hanging out with me. So I hope you all enjoy this conversation I have with Mark Simon. Today, super, super special guest, I have Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst at Sports Info Solutions, about 16 years over at ESPN as a writer and researcher working on the Baseball Tonight, incredible Baseball Tonight product. I loved all of it. Writer for the Trenton Times, notably covering the Trenton Titans minor league hockey team, author of the Yankee Index, and a very, very big Keith Hernandez fan. Mark, really appreciate you (laughs) hanging out with me tonight. Thank you for having me. The pleasure, I promise you, is all mine. I haven't gotten my 15 or 16 years at ESPN yet, so I have a little while to go. But, Mark, the first question I have for everyone on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Oh, okay. So I, I really Uh-oh. tried to do my homework on this one before uh, I came on to kind of think out what was it that like got me when I was like five, six years old. And I think that a couple of things come into play. One is the relationship between fathers and sons, right? So uh, my father uh, was a lifelong sports fan and took, after I became interested in sports, uh, started collecting sports memorabilia as a hobby. That's around 1980, um, 81, 82, somewhere in there. And then by 1986, it became a business and a very successful business for him that lasted a long time. But I think the the story there is I was looking for things that would connect me with my dad, just like anyone would. I think if my dad had been into classical music, I might have gone in that direction. Uh, But this was something that I hooked on. And I think the reason that I hooked on to that, uh, as opposed to some of the other things maybe that, that he liked, is I like the intellectual challenge and the intellectual aspect of sports, whether it be the strategy or the statistics. Um, But I also do like the human interest component too. Um, I like everything uh, pretty much, but I'm someone that that, uh, when they get into something, immerses, like total immersion. And I read everything and I listen to everything and it it becomes a lot of information cooking around my head. But I think uh, that it was the intellectual uh, aspect of something like baseball strategy, because I got into Stratomatic when I was very young. Uh, I think that hooked me. And I was very good at math as a a kid, humble brag. Um, So I think the math of baseball uh, also was what got me. So I think those things combined with the idea of connecting with a parent uh, were what did it for me. And I think it completely makes sense, right? Everyone wants to, every five, six, seven, 10 year old kid wants to impress their dad. They want to spend more time with them. Weirdly enough for me, it was actually my mom. Uh, my dad hates sports or he hates baseball. Um, he's a big San Diego Chargers fan, now LA Chargers, but he even still says San Diego uh, just because he loved Dan Fouts. And other than that, like that's about it. That's all he cared about. But my mom, uh, my grandmother on my mom's side, her, she was one of eight. So they all, they essentially were their own baseball team. So they, they were all really into baseball and I, that's how, you know, they're all Mets fans. So I became a Mets fan and I love every second of it, but man, one of these days, Mark, one of these days. And I think, you know, you <laughs> used to be a Mets fan. I understand now you're in that media realm, so you only can be so honest about it, but I'm sure when all the lights are off and all the cameras are off and no one's watching, you might say some things to yourself. Um, so I guess, so Again, you know, shout out to Adam. Do you have something for me? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. You put your finger up. I want to tell you had something cool for me. No, no, you're good. So with that, um, I think it is great. And just quick question, uh, follow up. You said your dad's 
business, it really started or took off in 86. Being up here in the Northeast, did that have to do with the Giants and the Mets both winning um, in the same year? Or was that just coincidental at that point? Uh, I think that was coincidental, but it certainly didn't hurt. I can remember uh, that the first baseball card show that he ever sold memorabilia at was... I think it was October 11th, I think, of 1986. And then two weeks later, October 25th and 26th, 1986. I remember we took a taxi to the baseball card show and the cab driver greeted us with, how about those Mets? After the ball went through Buckner's legs. Um, so I think that was coincidence. What, what happened was he used to advertise in a very unique way uh, on the streets in Manhattan, at the bus stops, he would put up signs that said baseball cards bought, sold, and traded. And people would tear off the phone number and they would call him with their childhood baseball card collections and they needed the money and they decided to sell. And we got things that were just awesome. 1950s cards, uh, near complete sets, Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle, uh, 1960s, 1970s, same kind of thing, complete sets. Um, we had a, a big collection of Ty Cobb checks, signed checks, uh, no that, that came to us, uh, or came to him. Uh, and it was, uh, that was the starting point for him. We started by writing away for autographs to his childhood favorites. Um, I knew all the, the guys that were on base, uh, and there were key parts of the game where Bobby Thompson hit the home run because we, that was what we started with for the, the collection. And he used to bring me back a pack a day. And that kind of evolved into a very, uh, very successful business uh, and a business that helped me learn sports and baseball history uh, in a pretty good way. And baseball history, there's so much of it to go around for everyone. We can all love it. And I apologize. One, one more point and one more interesting story to go along with that. My a dad, um, a good friend of my dad, was at a yard sale and just happened to like the look of this book. So he bought this book and he opens it up. And what does he find as the uh, as the bookmark? A Honus Wagner baseball card completely no. in great condition it was incredible swear to god he showed it to me it was one of the coolest things that i've ever seen it wasn't i mean obviously it was in used condition but it was right. it wasn't bent it, it wasn't it wasn't ripped. the one that's worth the bazillion dollars was it i think 1.6 million or something like that if i'm not mistaken seriously I, I, yeah it was it was crazy and the, the weirdest part about the story was this gentleman would walk around with it he like had it put in like a plastic card um you know like, like little case he would walk around and show everybody and we're all like, what are you doing, man? Like, put that one in your sock drawer next to, like, something. Wow. You know, put that away. But that was really interesting. Again, you okay. being a car collector. By the way, you interrupt. It's your podcast. No, come on. I, I, no one's here to listen to me, Mark. They don't download it to listen to my <laughs> questions. They, they, they want to hear you. They don't want to hear my stories. They want to hear, hear you. So shout out to Adam McKinnon and uh jim pass and jim was actually the one he said reach out to mark he's a really nice guy I'm like, all right i'll do that you were on their podcast so i listened to it and you have a really great story about how you got into baseball or how you got into espn and and um before we do get to that though i want to talk about your time at the trenton times because again being so close you covered minor league hockey as if it was just the Stanley Cup every night, man. Tell me about that. How do, you, how do you get into doing something like that? Sure. When I was in college, I wrote for the school newspaper and worked for the radio station and uh, had a very good relationship uh, with both professors, two professor journalism departments. So it was really small. And the Trenton Times had an opening for an internship for the first time in several years. And the professor kind of pushed me along to, uh, to get me in. And so I was doing that. And uh, I wound up there for six and a half years. And on the back end of that tenure, we got minor league hockey, uh, which was really cool. And it was like this happening thing in Trenton, New Jersey. They built this arena. It's super nice. It's going to be like the equivalent of baseball. They got the Flyers. It's the Flyers uh, ECHL team. Uh, there's lots of fighting. It'll be awesome. Um, and I kind of put my hat in the ring to cover it. And I was able to uh, do that. The first coach uh, of the team was Bruce Cassidy, who's the head coach uh, now of the Boston Bruins, uh, which was pretty cool. Uh, and they got, um, at one point, they got a guy who wound up having a very prosperous NHL career, but he was being sent down as a punishment, Ruslan Fedotenko, uh, who later scored, I believe, a game-winning goal in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup. Uh, he got sent to the, the bowels of Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, so we, as I said, the, the way that Trenton, New Jersey was unique 
was Trenton, New Jersey is like a mid-sized city, but it has two newspapers. It's one of the smaller, it was at the time, one of the smaller two paper markets in the country. And the owner of the other Trenton newspaper was a hockey insane fanatic uh, and had decided that his beat reporter was going to travel all the games and they were going to cover it like they, they were a tabloid with huge headlines and they were going to be super gung-ho about it. So our response to that was me. <laughs> and I got to be super gung-ho and enthusiastic. And I had a once-a-week column where I would have trade rumors that coaches told me. And I would, uh, if, if I would, I had a thing where I would pontificate about all the weird stuff that we would see. Uh, you'd, like uh, the, the lights suddenly go out in the arena. All right, do other people in other cities have stories of the lights going out in their arena? Weird stuff like that. And then you get to talk to the players. And I still remember this. And this was, this was really important to me. Uh, at the end of the first year, the star player, uh, when we were saying goodbye, they lost in the conference finals, said, I just want to tell you guys thank you because I appreciate that you made me the guy that you went to every night and that I had to speak up on behalf of the team and that I had to answer the tough questions and that I had to be a part of it. And that uh, player was Kale McLean, who right now I believe is an AHL head coach uh, and is, has knocked on the doorstep, I think, to, to make it to the, to the NHL. And he's highly regarded in minor league hockey. So that was, that was pretty cool that, to have that. It kind of reminded me a little bit of, of Aaron Boone, just with uh, the way that he approached things. Uh, and uh, it was neat. But I did that. So I did that for three years. Um, the second year they went to the championship, so they were really good. And the head coach was the former head coach of the Peng uh, was the former assistant coach for the Penguins. And then the third year, their head coach was Peter Horacek, who went on to become uh, interim coach. I think it was for the Leafs uh, when things were going uh, bad there. But uh, he got like half a season as a head coach there. Um, it was awesome. I had I had a great time doing it. Uh, I uh, I enjoyed beat reporting. Uh, and uh, I couldn't crack baseball, but hockey was kind of the next best thing. Hockey is pretty cool, and uh, you know that is that is awesome that the players would come to you guys um, and really say something like that, and it mm -hmm. means something because again, now that that really set him up, right? Like now he knows. Yep. Granted, it's again, been to Trenton, New Jersey. There's better places. There's worse places, but right. um, you know, it, it is. It's still kind of cool knowing that you could actually you know help shape someone's career because some people are terrible in front of a microphone. Um, yep. You know, let's look at. I'm a big Giants fan. Dave Gettleman never let him in front of a microphone again, in my <laughs> opinion. Um, but then there's guys that are just great at. It. Oh, Mets fan, Brody. Van Wagen and I prefer when he doesn't speak too but that's just a personal thing and that's you don't have any endorsement of that Mark Simon didn't say it Michael Rizil did so it's just it's always interesting to me to see how you know you as you know even within that that level and now being able to see these guys personally raise rise through the ranks like coaches have to go like very few of them are like you know Aaron Boone where they go from player well-known, well-regarded player to ESPN analyst all the way to now the head coach of the Yankees, manager of the Yankees. That doesn't happen. Most of the time, it's rising through the ranks as beat reporters do, as people in sports do. So tell me the story. I love it. You've told me already, but I want to get it recorded. Tell me the story of how you got your job um, on ESPN with Baseball Tonight and Jason Stark. Sure. Uh, I worked uh, at the Trenton Times for six and a half years, and the newspaper business at that point was doing all right, but it was just starting to hit its downward uh, movement to kind of to where it is now, where it's a kind of a shell of what it once was. And I knew that I was never going to be full time there. I was always going to be part time. I was going to be able to get by, but I was not going to be full time unless I wanted to be like an editor, which I didn't want to be. And even then, they didn't really have any openings. So I said, you know what, it's, I'm 27, it's like 26, it's dream job time. I need to do something where I'm starting to go for it. And I think I wrote to Sports Illustrated and uh, maybe one or two other places. And then in August of 2001, the Mariners uh, blew a 12-0 lead to the Indians. And I had been reading Jason Stark uh, on ESPN.com for a while, and he had a column called Useless Information, where he would talk about silly pieces of trivia that happened in games, which is, as I explained before, the intellectual curiosity, mm -hmm. my jam, uh, to use a younger person's word. Um, so, 
So I, I thought about it and I said, oh, I've got the perfect thing for Jason Stark. Dear Jason Stark, this is the biggest lead blown in a baseball game since Charlie Brown came out in relief of Pepper and Patty in the bottom of the ninth with two outs and the team up 50 to nothing and gave up 51 runs to lose the game while beaning Peppermint Patty in the process while she went to sell popcorn. Jason Stark read it and used it. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. I made Jason Stark's column. Here I am. It's like six paragraphs. I, I still have a copy of it. I know exactly where it is in my apartment. Uh, this, this is awesome. And I said, wait a second. I had applied for a job as a college basketball temp at ESPN in 97, and they, it was like a researcher position. So I knew that there was a researcher job available for everything. And I was like, there's got to be something for baseball tonight. That's like my kind of job. And that would give me a, a way in. But I hated applying to jobs at big companies because you just send a resume to human resources and it would get lost. So I said, all right, I'm going to write Jason Stark. Dear Jason Stark, you don't know me. I don't know you. I'm not looking for a reference. I'm looking for a name. Who is the person who does the hiring for baseball tonight? Just a name and an email. That's all I'm looking for. And he wrote back in a day. He wrote back. Uh, he gave me a name. I wrote that person. And I caught a lucky break here, certainly, because I was a total stranger writing another total stranger. Jason Stark told me to email you. Um, rumor has it you hire Baseball Tonight researchers. And he wrote back. I don't, but this guy does. <laughs> and I wrote that guy. Uh, his name is Craig Wax. And uh, next thing I know, uh, I got a little cocky in the cover letter. Uh, I, I can tell you that. And it intrigued Craig Wax enough to invite me to Bristol in the winter to interview to be a temp researcher making what was then, I think, $12 an hour. Uh, not on baseball tonight. Uh, printing out articles and printing out player biographies for the game broadcasters for Sunday night, Monday night, and Wednesday night baseball. And sitting it. in the studio with um, Brian Kenny and Bill Pito and Reese Davis and some of the mm -hmm. other anchors that would be doing the highlights uh, during games. Like they'd cut in, they would throw it back to the studio. Hey, here's Reese Davis. Okay, you give Reese Davis his little tidbit and he reads it over the air. Um, so I... I uh, I took the job uh, mm -hmm. and, and that I parlayed into 15 plus years, which I, I think worked out all right. I was going to say, it's a pretty darn good bet and uh, it worked, man. It, it definitely worked on yourself and I love that. And I, just, I, I love this story. Yeah, I, I want to say too yeah. that that is important. Um, I always tell people with this, um, strike when the opportunity is there. Don't be shy about reaching out. Um, you got, there's got to be a little luck involved. Um, but bet on yourself too, certainly. Uh, if you're confident, and I remember I was not, my parents, I think, were the ones who kind of talked me towards ESPN, at least one of them did. Um, I was not, but in, in hindsight, I should have been uh, because I was way overqualified for the initial job that, that I got there. Yeah. And I, again, I think it's first, I love the story. I just think it's a really funny story on kind of how it worked. And, and again, you, you gave the value first, right? It's not like you just reached out to Jason Stark and said, hey, I just need a name and a number. It's no, Hey, look at this. Here's something that you can use. Here's some value that I can give to you. Was that, 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 if I'm not mistaken, like that, you just reached out for fun and you thought it was yes. funny. That wasn't the initial, like, Oh, let me do this. See, like giving without the expectation of anything in return is always the best way yes. to get the most back, which is kind of ironic. If you like actually try and analyze it and think about it, how, how surprised were you when again, Jason reached out, gave you the wrong name, that person was then nice enough to give you the correct name. Yep. How surprised were you with all these stars aligning? So uh, to connect the dots, Jason gave me the name of the producer of the show who was not okay. affiliated with the research department. Uh, I later developed a very good relationship with that person and still correspond with him to this day. Um, I, I wasn't totally surprised that Jason responded because of one thing. At the Trenton Times, there was a guy working there named David Porter, who used to work for the Philadelphia Inquirer, who worked with Jason Stark and knew Jason Stark enough that he was sitting next to him when the ball went through Bill Buckner's legs. And I had said to him, nothing more than, I wrote Jason Stark, uh, is, is he all right? You think he would write back to me? And the guy said, yep, definitely. That's awesome. So, 
That is good to know. Jason Stark. I've always liked Jason Stark. Um, so I'm happy to know that he's also a really good guy. That that helps a lot too. He's an A plus plus plus. Um I presume we'll segue into the book, but he helped me connect uh, with the book too. And he has helped uh, at a number of turns for me that were very pivotal. And I'm not the only one, like Tyler Kepner in the New York Times tells the same kind of story about how Jason Stark was uh, significantly influential. Jason Stark's a Hall of Fame writer and a Hall of Fame person uh, as well. Love that. That is awesome. And yes, we will get to your book. I'm just so confused on a former Mets fan writing a book about the Yankees. I mean, I, I understand, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. And there, there's one part of the story that you were saying, telling um, that you actually left out on this version because you said when you, you, know, you, you got there and um, you started giving those clips to everyone, then you, you decided to, like, there wasn't an actual writer's position. You were doing research, but you decided to add a little spice and you actually wrote something for the guys on Sunday night baseball, correct? Yes. So what happened was it was me doing this print out job the first couple of weeks and being like, what the heck? Uh, I spent six and a half years as a journalist. I trained as a journalist. I'm, I'm, I'm legit. Come on. Um, so I went to the guy who produces Sunday night baseball. Um, and I said, uh, I, can do more than this. Can, can you let me? Uh, and I said, here's the deal. You, you, here's all the things that you're going to have. What don't you have right now? And it was Bartolo Colon against Jared Washburn on opening day 2002, the first broadcast of the year. And the guy said, we don't have anything good on Jared Washburn. And it was like a gift from heaven. Jared Washburn went to the University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh. By a stroke of good fortune, I had previously written for D3Hoops.com, website that covers Division Three college basketball, and D3Football.com. And I had at some point in like a five-year period talked to a very large majority of the sports information directors across the country, including the guy at Wisconsin Oshkosh. Hey, can you help me out? I, I need someone who can tell me some good Jared Washburn stories. Oh, we'll give you the baseball coach. Here you go. Talked to the baseball coach. Baseball coach told me a story of how, I, I don't remember if it was the slider or the changeup. Here's what we taught, how we taught Jared Washburn how to throw the pitch. Look at the red dot on the ball. You'll figure it out. This whole thing. I give that to the Sunday night baseball crew and the producer's like, we don't typically get this kind of thing from the researcher. I was like, good, excellent. That's what That's I'm looking perfect. for. perfect, yep. And, um, so they give it to John Miller and Joe Morgan. They have a picture of Washburn in the Oshkosh hat. They're all set to go. Four runs in the first inning. Story <laughs> never had a prayer. It, it didn't get in. It was, very, oh, it was a very upsetting moment. I can tell you that while I didn't shed tears, I came close as I was sitting in a vacant studio watching Sunday night baseball by myself uh, in – April of 2002. It was not the Angels' best day. They would have many good days after that. They went on to win the World Series. Jared Washburn had a few good days after that, including one more on ESPN, and the story made it that day. So uh, the work was not for naught, but that that was important because it made a good impression. Mm -hmm. uh, it set the tone uh, for everything that followed. I'm looking right now. Jared Washburn that year, 18 and 6, 315 ERA. Couldn't have had a good game on opening day. Yeah, yeah, right. I was going to say, especially in 2002, that's not, those aren't terrible statistics in the middle yes. of uh, all that stuff that was going on. I mean, I think Bartolo Colon won the Cy Young with what, like a 3-5 or like Yeah, something, something like, like that. Something and, ridiculous like that. Um, but, you yeah. know, I, I love that story because I think it, it shows the resourcefulness, right? Like you obviously, you put in all this work up to this point. Now you get this job at ESPN that's, as you even said, like, I'm better at than clipping out things and giving it to guys, right? I can do so much more. Just let me try showing the initiative and then showing that huge network that you've been able to develop over this time. Um, I mean, those are three just like great lessons. Anyone listening to this, understand, do a lot of work, help a lot of people, and it's going to come back to you. And make sure to show a little bit of initiative along the way that you can provide that value as you already did with Jason Stark as well. Yeah, and I know that this is kind of one of the themes of your podcast, and I do a, a talk to um, people that come to my current job. Uh, I talk to new employees uh, about this, and I say, um, you know, know your role and do the, the grunt work, but when you get the shot, take the shot, because um, 
how else are you going to move up? Like mm-hmm. they want to see, they want to see initiative from people. They want to sh- see that people are thinking and that people care uh, about what they're doing. And something like that, that was extra work. Like I, I think that showed that I cared. I wasn't, I wasn't shy about staying late uh, or, you know, doing what I had to do, calling different places from home to try and dig up tidbits uh, I've done all sorts of weird things like that, and I'm happy to do it because uh, I want the work to be good. Exactly, and that's how you get a career at ESPN for 16, almost 16 years and then another incredible job after it at Sports Info Solutions. I, also, there's one other piece to that story that you kind of you, – you ended it with – when we spoke on the phone, you ended it with how, you know, starting with clipping and then rec- not too far after that, you were making the, um, the case for Keith Hernandez to be in the World Series. Yeah, the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Oh, yes, I apologize. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah. Can you tell me just like the, the high level points of that? Because I, I will agree with anything you say about Keith Hernandez pretty much. <laughs> sure. So Keith Hernandez is my dad's all-time favorite myth. So it was ingrained in me at a very young age. There were certain players that I was told to watch. Keith Hernandez and Dale Murphy were kind of like the first of those. Um, and the, the points with Keith Hernandez were, one, he was an incredible defensive player first baseman to the point where he could do a couple of things. One, play way off the bag and get back to the base. Two, make the really good diving or leaping or sliding uh, play. And three, completely take away the bunt, which at the time was an important play in baseball. Uh, Take away the bunt from the other team. And four, he was a clutch hitter like very few that we saw. He had the game tying hit in game seven of the 86 World Series. Or no, I'm sorry, he had the uh, well, the yeah, it was not the game tying it. He drove in the first two runs in Game Seven of the '86 World Series, and the '82 World Series Game Seven. He had a similarly big hit. And I want to I want to clarify one thing. You referred to me as former Mets fan. We're gonna. I want to explain this. I straddle the line very much. I am a. Um, I consider myself like a baseball reporter journalist. Um, there's, I don't think there's a secret as to which team I follow the most avidly. So I appreciate what you said. We'll, we'll just kind of leave it as I follow avidly. Uh, and I, but I, I'm honest and document uh, when there are points to be made that are not good for them. And there's, there's certainly have been many over the last oh, few years. Oh, yeah, that's easy, honestly. <laughs> All right, easy. But so, so Keith Hernandez, great clutch hitter, great batting eye. Um, just everything that you would want a baseball player to be except for speed, which he actually had decently at the, the early parts of his career. Just looking, uh, looking things over mm-hmm. here. And at the time he was like, a, he was a good player for his time because he didn't hit a lot of home runs. Uh, but boy, he, there was nobody who wanted up more than him. So I gave that little spiel and th- that apparently worked. I love it. And thank you for that. I know this is a story about you, but as I said, if we're going to talk about Keith Hernandez, I, I watch Mets broadcast half the time to watch the Mets the other half just to hear something that Keith Hernandez, whatever is <laughs> going to come out of his mouth. That's my favorite part. So you, you get to ESPN, obviously, with a significant amount of hard work, doing a lot, as we said, the initiative, the resources that you've been able to follow. You then were able to build that resume at ESPN. So over a 16-year period, one thing I always like to touch upon, too, is that mindset that you have. And obviously, the mindset to get there is very important. But what was your mindset like when you were there? Again. You were at your dream job, quote unquote, your words, not mine. Like, how do you then make sure you're always trying to take it to the next level? All right. So that's divided into a few different time periods. First okay. two years, I've worked helping the game broadcasters with their, their notes. Got very, uh, I guess, tired of that and wanted to get out and was thinking of leaving. Um, kind of a very lucky thing happened. One, I applied for the job as the play-by-play broadcaster for the Trenton Titans. Didn't get it. Within days of that happening, the head researcher for Baseball Tonight got promoted to management. His backup got promoted to another job. And the third string Baseball Tonight person, not me, got promoted as well. So the C parted for me, and I raised my hand and said, hey, can I get a turn? And they were, I had not worked on a TV show to that point, and they were nervous about it. Um, I can remember talks I had uh, with management after that, they were a little concerned. They had a veteran who was going to be like the, the second guy who was going to step in if I screwed up, but I did all right. <laughs> so I did that from, um, let's see, that's 04 to 2010. 
And seven years is a long time. That's a high pressure gig. Uh, five days a week, uh, often two shows a night, uh, except Sundays where you have that one big show. Uh, you go to the World Series, you go to the All-Star Game. It's intense. And I am someone who goes really hard uh, at things like that. And at the end of seven years, they actually created another position where you would oversee all of the baseball content in research, whether it was us writing articles or the game broadcast help or baseball tonight, you would be like the grand planner mm -hmm. for that. Uh, I did that for a year and a half and I found that I'd rather be a doer than a planner. Um, so they trans they still liked my work, um, but I transitioned into working on social media and blog. Uh, we started our own blog uh, and we started working with ESPN.com, my journalism background. I love to write. Like people tell me that I'm generally happier when I write. So I wanted to do things like uh, write more. I didn't care if it was baseball, football, basketball, hockey, uh, whatever. Transition to that. ESPN Stats Info Twitter started with zero people. And I remember someone saying, are we sure we really want to send tweets? Yes, we really want to send tweets. Yes, I'm on Twitter. It's, it's a good thing to be. Let's try it. And now they're at like, I don't know, 1.6 million, something like that, mm -hmm. probably. Uh, and we, I remember the days we were at zero. Uh, and I was the person who sent the tweets five nights a week uh, at night uh, for the last, uh, what, five, six years of my tenure. Um, so the, I guess the mindset was, um, I, as I said, I kind of go hard and then I, uh, I shift uh, approach. Mm -hmm. uh, so I shifted approach which was, I, I don't know that I would recommend that for everyone. Uh, I certainly miss, uh, missed working on Baseball Tonight in some respects. Uh, there are a lot of things that I didn't miss, which was good. Uh, it's, it, uh, television is, pre is a pressure job because like think about the people that are on CNN or MSNBC or, or any of those networks right now where those fonts have to be correct and the mm -hmm. graphics that they put on the screen have to be correct. And that can get to you if, if you let it a little bit. Um, so, uh, I, my goal was just, uh, get to baseball tonight, which I did, and then just see, see how that goes and, and let it go from there. And then hopefully something, uh, just as good would come along if I decided I ever want to step away. And it sounds like you had a lot of fun doing it too, right? I mean, I think that's the mo another very important part. If you're not enjoying it, why are we doing right? Of course it's a job. So there are certain times that it's just not going to be perfect. You're not going to be happy every single moment of every day. But as long as you're happy every day, I think that's the, one of the most important parts. So the fun of it was in the intellectual challenge of it, trying to come up with clever titles for the graphics or trying to figure out what graphic makes sense, what statistic makes sense to tell the story of a game in a single sentence, essentially. And I can remember with the, when the 04 Red Sox won the World Series, I'm like, I'm thinking if you're watching ESPN right now and you're watching the highlight and they come out of the highlight and they show a graphic on TV, you want that graphic to tell the story of the 2004 Red Sox and the grand aspect of this one. Okay. We're going to put up longest drought. So you got your 86 year drought ended, but two, the Red Sox were three outs away from losing the whole thing against the Yankees in the LCS how many teams have gone from three outs from playoff elimination to winning the whole thing? So we threw that list up there. And I felt good after that, 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 that those two pieces of information, if you knew nothing else, those told you the story of the Red Sox season in uh, 2004. The other aspect of the job that is really cool is quite frankly, was the relationships he built with the, the former players and the writers mm -hmm. and the people that worked on the show. And uh, that was a really, really good part for me because you're there to help. So there's no reason for them to ever uh, get mad at you other mm -hmm. than, you know, if you gave them a wrong stat. Um, so, so the relationship is a very easy one and it allowed me to have good rapports with people like Aaron Boone or Dusty Baker or a Carl Ravitch or Tim Kirchin or Jason Stark or whomever. Uh, you're there to help them. They're all very nice people. And uh, I think we all got along pretty well. That is awesome. And, and another thing that I really like is the way you kind of moved around. It seems like you were able to gain experience and gain work experience in a different area, but it still all could apply 
to something that and I think that's very important and still be able to utilize that, especially into your new role. And, um, you know, just to, I don't think you said Buster Olney's name, but if I'm not yep. mistaken, he wrote sure. the forward on your work on your book. He did. So I would love to learn a little bit about, you know, I, that was at your time at ESPN. And again, it's a very Mets thing to do to want to look across town and just see how successful the Yankees are <laughs> and what they're doing. And believe me, I do it all the time. A lot of my friends, my cousins, I'm a Yankees fan. So I watch, you know, the Yes Network and see how much better it is than SMY, in my opinion. And I watch the Yankees and all the things they do. And I'm just like, why can't the Mets do that? And it's very frustrating. But where was the onus and where was the idea and behind? And I'll be honest, I have not read the book, so I apologize. No, but fine. where was the reason and, and why did you want to write, being a lifelong Mets fan, not anymore-ish, but why did you want to write a Yankees book? All right. Um, so there, there's a couple of stories here. <clears throat> One is, I can remember this, Tim Kirchner wrote his book, Is This a Great Game or What? It is arguably one of the best baseball books I've ever seen, and you're talking to someone who has a collection of about a thousand. Um, it's amazing. It's, it's hilarious. It's insightful. It's poignant. It's smart. It's just everything you'd want in a baseball book. There were a couple of things in it that, that were a little off, just really minor things, and I wound up telling Tim. And he was like, okay, in the paperback, we'll get those all straight. And what exactly do you mean by off? Like a typo. Like just, oh, okay. okay. Or, um, or you might have said two outs in the ninth when there was one out in the ninth. So clarifying okay. some factual things. Then Buster came to me and said, would you like to proofread, fact check um, this book that I'm writing about a basketball coach? And I was like, yeah, sure. You got it. Um, and I did that. And by then, I guess I had a rep as being someone who could do that. And Jason Stark came to me and said, we're taking a lot of my old columns, but I want to update some of them and I want to change the numbers. And uh, if I can get you paid, again, Jason Stark, Hall of Fame person, thinking of that, uh, will you help me? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so he sends me the manuscript and I go through it like 25 pages at a time and I'm sending the editor of the book these very lengthy, here's why you would change this because that. And, <laughs> and so we get done and I said to the guy, look, if there's ever a situation where someone of my skill sets could write a book for you, I would love to do it. Um, I would be super interested. The topic is, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I said to the topic doesn't matter. <laughs> ah, me, so, man. so flash forward a few months, I made a viral video, uh, what turned into a viral video in which I recited the last batter of the last 65 world series and like acted out some of it and just got really silly. Um, it's just, if you have a, if you're able to memorize things in large groups, I, I was able to do it. And it, it made a lot of people laugh. It got a lot of views on YouTube. Um, my baseball friends all love it. Um, so they saw it. And then not long after that, the editor wrote me and said, we've got a book. And I was like, okay. And he's like, so we haven't decided if it's going to be a Yankees book or a Red Sox book. Oh, no. <laughs> I said, all right, um, that's fine. I would gladly do either one. And the guy's like, we're going to take numbers and we're going to mix them with stories. And your each one will be like four or five pages and you can pick the numbers that you want to do and you have very strong editorial uh, command of what goes in the book and you decide. And I'm like, all right, yeah, let's do, let's do this. I can, I can pretend to like the Yankees for, <laughs> for eight months. You can respect them. That's the thing. As yes. a Mets fan, I hate the Yankees, that, but I respect the hell exactly out of them. That's exactly the word. Respect. And that's the thing I hate the most, I think, that I it's, respect them and I want to be them. It's so frustrating. So, so I took the way the book worked. All right. Was, the Lou Gehrig chapter was titled 2130. The Joe DiMaggio chapter is titled 56. The Babe Ruth chapter is titled 60. The Aaron Small chapter is titled 
10 and 0 or 11 and 0 or whatever it was that he did for them in 2005. The Slow Joe Doyle chapter is titled 2 because he had a shutout in each of the first two starts of his career in like 1910. So I was able to I remember I sat down and I made a list of like 90 chapters that could go in the book. And I was like, I'm just going to do these. And if I have to cut, I'll cut. And uh, I overwrote by like 20,000 words or something like that. <laughs> An <laughs> entire book practically. <laughs> yeah. And the editor said, I said to the editor, what if I could shorten these thousand word things into hundred word fillers that we could intersperse throughout the book? And the editor said, sure, go for it. And we had lots of charts. It looked a lot like it had an ESPN feel to it, certainly. Uh, it's a book about the history of the Yankees, but there's something in it for everyone. There's plenty in it that you wouldn't know. Aaron Small says to me, you really want me in a book with Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth, and Joe DiMaggio? Yes, I do, because that's what makes it distinct. Uh, so it has stories about players you've heard of. It has stories about players you haven't. I talked to some. Uh, there were some cool interactions with players along the way. Uh, it came out in 2016. It sold a little bit. Um, and I got, I got my money up front. And uh, it was a great experience. And every time I hold the book in my hand, I smile. Uh, and every time I look and, and, and look down on it, it's look like, uh, I'm looking at like I'm I'm looking like a proud father, so it's really cool. I love it. Of course, I mean, writing a book is no that's it's no small undertaking. It's incredible, and especially to write it about the Yankees, that's even more impressive in my mind. So, congratulations on that. I'm glad we got to touch upon that for a second. And don't worry, hopefully, we can get a couple extra people to buy the book. I'll have that in the show notes in case anyone is wondering. <laughs> they could check it out. Any Good Yankees luck trying to there. find it. Oh, it's on Amazon. I got yeah. it. I get it on Kindle. Ten bucks. You, yes, correct. Yeah, that's easy. You should, right. Everyone should have a Kindle at this point anyway. That's super there easy. There you go. So um, ESPN, and I know we only have like 15 more minutes maybe. So I, I, wanna, I definitely want to get to what you're doing now. So after you're at ESPN for about 16 years, you make all these incredible relationships. You find all, you do all these things throughout all these different facets of ESPN. You run the Twitter feed. You're on Baseball Tonight. You're doing all these different things, researching, writing, being a journalist, not being a journalist, doing content, planning. You're doing all these different things. What was... What, why did you want to move to Sports Info Solutions? What was it that this company came along and was like, all right, you got me? So in the mid-2010s, I think, uh, they established a relationship with ESPN on the baseball side where they were providing kind of their, their, some of their products uh, to ESPN. And I was the liaison for that. Um, and I had gotten very interested in it. I like defensive stats. Uh, that's uh, kind of where companies specialty on the baseball side. We sell statistics to and tools to major league teams to help them with strategic decisions in uh, personnel and game planning. Um, so you might have noticed at ESPN that, that they're not as into baseball as they used to be. Mm -hmm. They're very into the NFL. They're very into college football. They're very into the NBA. I don't begrudge them. Those things rate. Uh, those things do very well. But when you're there and that's happening, it's a tough thing to go through. And I got a little, I think, frustrated by that. And I started looking around and telling people that if they ever had something where they needed a writer, a writer type who liked baseball, reach out and we can have a conversation. Um, in, I guess, what, 17, um, ESPN ended their relationship with Sports Info Solutions on the baseball side, but moved it over to the college football side. Uh, and they're, we're now the official like um, game tracking company for ESPN, where we send them like this quarterback was five for five throwing 20 yards downfield, all that sort, sort of stuff. But with the baseball relationship cut, they had had an idea for something that they had for a while, but they didn't want to just like poach me. Mm -hmm. Now they felt it was all right to reach out, which is fine. Um, and we, we had discussions. I interviewed, spent, spent a day there, thought about it, got really nervous about it. Uh, it's hard to leave something that you've been at for 16 years, but uh, realized that uh, it was very mentally taxing to stay at ESPN being in, in the, the place that I was. Uh, I left. I still keep in touch with lots of people. Um, there are no like grudges or anything like that. I'm, I'm, it was time and it doesn't, 
it doesn't bother me uh, to to say that I have uh, moved on. And it was good to get out on my terms um, rather than be let go. As mm-hmm. uh, I know, you, you don't want to be hit by that. Yeah, uh, some of your friends too, Jason Stark. That one was the one that was most confusing to me. Like I was like, how how is ESPN letting this guy go? And we don't have to go into the specifics. No, of that one. Yeah, that's we, just a, just a personal like on a personal note. Like there were, I okay, so there were a him. lot of those. Oh no, there were a lot of people behind the scenes um, that it was very unfortunate and just mm-hmm. felt like things were going in a direction that was not favorable to me. And to be blunt about it, I didn't handle it particularly great. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I, I think for my own sanity, it was a good thing that I moved on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. And it sounds like you, you really enjoy what you're doing now. And you've always been into statistics, right? As you were saying before, you love the mathematics. You love looking at the back of the baseball card and figuring out how all this stuff works, right? So did you ever realize or did you ever think, you know, being that researcher, being the, you know, having a lot to do with statistics, did you ever think that your career would pretty much just pretty much come down to statistics at that point? So when I was, um, I have a, my sixth grade autograph book uh, from, from when I graduated um, grammar school. And there are people who signed it, uh, go into accounting or something other than sports, because it seems like all you want to do is sports numbers. Um, so I've known this for a long time. And that is that, awesome. that's, um, I think that's all right. I don't think there's, uh, I think it's cool. Like, it's funny when you're in the heat of the moment, I get very worked up uh, about a lot of the projects that I'm working on. That There's not this great appreciation. When I talk to someone like you and I tell you the stories and you see the big picture, it becomes a lot easier to take. It's, it's exactly. kind of like a, a therapeutic device, I guess, in a way that it's cool to talk to people about what I do uh, and share my story and hope that it helps them like uh, Jason Stark helped me. Absolutely. And Mark, if you just want to call me up and tell me about your story, I'm more than willing. (laughs) I'm sure there's a million stories we left out in the middle of there. I just have a couple more questions about sports info solutions. I know um, defensive statistics, you said that is really where you guys, you have the fielding Bible. I think we're on volume five right now, if I'm not mistaken. Just Um, came out. Okay, awesome. So I'm, I'm doing a little bit of research. So that clearly shows that I'm, I'm trying a little bit over here. Um, with defensive statistics, statistics, one thing that's always been really interesting to me, obviously, we started with like fielding percentage. And anybody that pays attention to baseball, you now know, don't really take fielding and percentage too, too much. There's a lot of other things. Now we have UZR, we have total zone. With war and these very specific defensive t- statistics, they're always changing, especially when they first came out. People are always like, oh, you know, take them at face value, but don't use them too, too. Like, don't don't base everything on them. At what point, how do you feel how, like over the last however many years it's been, how have these defensive statistics improved and how much more useful do you think they are now than when they first originally came out? Uh, they are way better now than when they first came. Um, one of the things that's cool is – What we do is we essentially attach, I don't want to quite say that it's a degree of difficulty, but basically um, to any play that's made in any game, um, where essentially you want to say that not every play is created equal, right? Just because uh, not every put out, not every assist, not every uh, mistake is the same. And we have devised systems uh, that value that, just to give it the simplest explanation. Let's say there's a ground ball down the third base line, and we can tell you, okay, if the if Matt Chapman is standing here, the chances of that ball being an out are this. If he's standing five feet over, the chances of that ball being an out are something different. I think that's a pretty sophisticated way to look at it. MLB has certainly come up with a number of good advanced metrics as well. We, um, we don't really view them as like a comp- competition kind of thing. We think that everything can kind of work hand in hand. Um, but that's not something that you had in the 1960s or the 1970s or the Keith Hernandez time. Um, Keith Hernandez would have scored off the charts in defensive run save, which is our, our big stat because he was uh, amazing. Uh, when it came to making plays that other first basemen couldn't make, 
Uh, and that's what you want in the end. You want a guy that, that's making the plays he should make and then making the plays that he shouldn't make. And we can tell you that Matt Chapman's great or Angelton Simmons, you probably know from the eye test, is mm-hmm. pretty good. But we can also tell you that Paul DeYoung is pretty good. And most people don't think of Paul DeYoung as pretty good. Uh, I think it's nice when the numbers uh, surprise you like that. Um, so it, it's, it's a developing field. There are still things to be worked out with defensive positioning being as sophisticated as it is, as it is now. Uh, but we're getting there. And it certainly uh, is a useful tool uh, for people to learn to appreciate baseball player value. I like that. That is very important too. I mean, defense, uh, especially with the shifts now and the way everything works and watching the Brewers play too, was always very interesting. They're like, well, Mike Moustakis kind of stinks. Now maybe Mark Simon can tell me different, but we'll <laughs> just kind of position him where Orlando Arcia can just get to every single ball yep. and never have to worry about where he is. So I utilize that information for my fantasy league. I had a second baseman that popped like 35 home runs. That was pretty sweet. And uh, just <laughs> one, one little note on Paul DeYoung being a Mets fan. Um, the only thing I know about Paul DeYoung is he rocks the Mets every single time he plays them. I can't remember what his OPS against them is, but it's insane. And Gary Cohen always reminds me about it with, um, <laughs> Um, with you guys continuing to get better and better with these defensive statistics, man, that word's hard for me. What else, like, what are some new, maybe you can't tell us, but like, what are some new updates or new products or or ways of going about it? Can you look back in time a little bit? I just saw Mike Trout's war went up for some reason, because I think (laughs) someone applied something new on the defensive side. Like what are some of the things that you guys are able to do either retroactively or, or for the future to make these um, statistics even more concrete? So we, uh, with this latest book that we just published, Fielding Bible 5, we created the system that I was um, sort of explaining before. Like, we couldn't tell you if a guy was shifted, um, what he was doing. Like, was he making an important play or not? Because we didn't know where, he, where his starting point was. Um, and we couldn't, it was a weird quirk in defensive or unsaved that we treated everyone as if they were working from the same starting point when obviously now that's ridiculous. Especially, People are all yeah. over the place. So we added this component that allows us to tell that Matt Chapman thing. What's the, what's the probability of all third basemen making a play when you're standing there versus when you're standing here versus where you're standing there. Imagine the field is like a grid, a grid mm-hmm. with a lot of like hexagons or X's or whatever however you want to imagine it, but that, that's the system. We can tell you for any spot in the grid, for any ball, like, okay, this is a 60% out. This is a 32% out. Uh, so we improved the sophistication of that for infielders in particular. I think the next step would be to do it for outfielders, which is uh, challenging and requires certain technological things that hopefully will come to be in the next few years. Um, so that will be uh, something that I think will be useful for us because we do the way that our company functions is we have video scouts. We have people that sit and watch uh, games and they track every minute piece of data that happens in a game. Uh, they, uh, they do amazing work. Uh, they have amazing patience uh, for all that they have to do. Uh, the GM of the Rays started as a video scout, which is a cool uh, talking point for us, Eric Neander. Um, but it's hard uh, and they're good. And um, ideally we want to be able to give them more tools so that they can pinpoint things. And then our R and D department can turn those into usable products and usable stats for the public. I love that. And then, so you guys work with the teams as well to get them this information. So that way they can then utilize it. We, uh, our business uh, is with more than two thirds of the major league teams. The number varies from year to year. It's safe to say more than two thirds. Um, But yeah. So we also, speaking Mets, we have a cool product where I write notes that broadcast crews use just like i was doing at espn and we sell gonna, them I, to i knew this was coming i had this yeah. in my list because i wanted to make this all full circle because okay. i think it's awesome well we're gonna get there we do it for the giants which is mike kruko and Dwayne kuiper john miller and dave fleming uh they the they are the they're a little old school. They were a little tough to crack, but I think we're in a good place with them. Mike Kruko in particular is intrigued when we send notes about the umpires. We do scouting reports of the umpires. Is he like the outside corner, inside corner, high, low, what's he like? Uh, we do it for the Tigers and Kirk Gibson. 
uh, who's broadcaster for FSN Detroit. He has been a fan of Sports Info Solutions for a while. Something people might not have thought that he was into the analytics of the game, but he is. Uh, so it's cool to prep reports for him. And then a couple of times a year, we do it for SNY, we do it for Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling, which is really, 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 really cool. That is awesome, man. So you just get to send them notes, and because I they yes. they bring your name up, like they'll say, yeah, from our good friend Mark Simon. Like it, that, I think that it's has awesome. happened. Yes, yeah. it's funny. the The best of those, I still say, is with the umpires. We sent an umpire analysis, and Keith Hernandez says, "We got these really interesting emails from Sports Info Solutions about the umpires." I was like, "Yes, we've made it." That's awesome. Top of the world, man. Oh, Mark, uh, honestly, I could ask you questions all day, but you, you said you only got an hour. We're only like two minutes away from that. The last question I have for you sure. is with Sports Info Solutions, obviously being at the company for a couple of years now, what is that like? I, I assume you're, you're closer to the top. You're obviously a very uh, notable figure in sports and baseball and everything. What is that like pie in the sky view? Is it having all 30 baseball teams all 32 football teams like what exactly is the company's mission goal and, and what are you guys really trying to achieve there so the owner of the company is john dewan who founded stats inc with um, some other people in the 80s and turned that into a very successful business and then um, founded sports info solutions his goals have always been um like obviously he wants to do well financially but he He's very big on the idea of advancing the baseball discussion and advancing uh, what is known about baseball. Uh, he was a actuary before he got into baseball stats. So he's very curious about statistics. Uh, and he's also, um, I guess, philanthropic uh, is the best way to put it uh, with some work that he does outside of our company. And I think he just has the idea that he wants to give back to the stat community, so to speak. Um, so I think, yeah, it'd be great to have all 30 teams subscribe to our products. And I, I think we'd sign up for that in a second. Um, but I think he just wants to be able to advance the research in the field uh, and be thought of as a valuable uh, part of the sports statistics community. And what about you? What are, what are some of your goals? Oh, geez. Sorry. Uh, we can do no, a whole nother podcast no, on fair, it if you want. That's fine with me. Perfectly fair. Um, I would like to find ways to connect publicly um, through writing and through social media and through audio. Like we're doing that on a small scale. I'd like that scale to get not huge, but I'd like that scale to get a little bit larger. Uh, I certainly like to write about baseball. I like going to the ballpark and writing about baseball. I, I've done that uh, a good amount. I did that last year. I talked to, I did a, a game in the life of a defense where I watched the Rays and only their defense for nine innings uh, and talked to people about that. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I'd like to do more of those kinds of things because I, I think the thinking with the company is like, if you can connect with the public, it will help you connect with the private sector as well uh, and that things will, uh, will work out well from there. So I think that's where I stand with that. And I've recently liked some of your... Um... You've been doing some live streams on Twitter, uh, reading a bunch of stuff, which has been pretty funny uh, recently. Especially. Oh, you want to give that a plug? Please, let's I give do. that a plug. That sure. was funny. That was funny. So since we're all stuck here with coronavirus uh, looming its evil head uh, around us and just been a very tough time, uh, I have put on Twitter uh, where I will read newspaper stories from old time baseball, like Babe Ruth being dragged, uh, dragging a little kid around the bases or Joe DiMaggio having his hitting streak stopped or um, the one I'm doing today, there's one about uh, the umpire, an umpire from 1904 explaining how the spitball works, huh. um, which is uh, an unexpected twist that I came upon when I was looking for something completely different. Um, so yeah, I like baseball history. I like to read aloud, uh, as I think I've discovered, and uh, I like to broadcast. So I, reading aloud isn't that big of a different step. I've been doing it on Twitter. Mark A. Simon says, if people want to check it out, the intent, so the, the uh, impetus for it was Save With Stories, which is a charitable um, venture uh, that has been done by Jennifer Garner and Amy Adams to 
raise money for a couple of charities. Save Our Children, I think, is one of them. No, or uh, No Child Hungry um, is kind of the big theme. And I watched a couple of those. And um, I was like, I can do that. And so I started doing it my own way. I don't have children's stories here, so I read baseball stories. I love it. This is good <laughs> stuff. Mark, I know I had like four last questions for you, and I promise no, that's ahead. it. Go ahead. One no, more. no, no. That's it. That's it. That's all I got. Right. I promise. That's it. Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst at Sports and Fellow Solutions. All of his socials will be in the show notes. Sincerely. Oh, and the book. The books too. Both books. Fielding Bible um, and uh, the, the Yankee Index. Uh, really appreciate your time today, Mark. Thank you so much. You got it. Thank you all so much for checking out this interview and conversation I had with Mark Simon. Make sure to follow him and his incredible social media platforms across all the internet. He does some really funny and some really great things on them. Everything is in the show notes. If you could please give us a five-star review on iTunes, Apple, Spotify, wherever you think makes sense because we are always looking for more reviews, so we appreciate that. And thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of. So I thank you for giving me some of yours and I hope you make it a wonderful day.